As the year draws to an end, I wanted to take time to thank each of you for listening and supporting this endeavor. A simple idea born of a local tragedy has created a community that now reaches internationally. Someone I never had the chance to meet made an impact on my life when he decided to end his. At that moment, I knew someone had to create a platform to expose the traumas, the emotions, and the stories of first responders. I also realized we all needed to hear the stories of triumph and recovery. This show has provided just that, a platform for survivors to tell their stories. The majority of these episodes have focused on firefighters and their loved ones. In the new year, I look to branch out to include all aspects of the first responder community. Law enforcement, military, nurses, dispatchers, just to name a few. Our stories are very personal, but the lessons learned are universal. I look forward to bringing you these stories as well as a variety of voices both inside and outside of our community. During the next few weeks, I will highlight and re-release a few previous episodes. New episodes will return January 11th, and I am beyond grateful for the response this show has received and the support each of you gave in the last six months. I look forward to 2023 and wish you all well into the new year. The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Today we're sitting down with Chris Monroe. He's out of Utah. He claims to be just a backseat firefighter, which we all know is not just a backseat firefighter. It's probably the most important position in the fire service. I'm going to let him tell a little bit of his story, his family history, and some of his professional history, and then we'll get into the story of why he's on the show today and, and where he's been and where he's going from here. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. So yeah, I'm coming up on my 39th birthday, which is kind of crazy to think about. But so I kind of got into this whole thing. I started out, I enlisted in the army reserve when I was 16 or the national guard when I was 16, decided I didn't want to be a comms guy. So I switched over when I turned 17 into the reserve so I could be a combat engineer. Graduated high school, went right off to basic training. I was a week away from graduating from my job school and basic training and broke my back, jumping out of a back of a deuce and a half. And I kept trying to push it on and they said, sorry, pal, you're on your own. See you later. And so that was really hard for me because I pretty much had every kid at that time at that age is, oh man, I got my life figured out. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to do the army. Then I'm going to be a cop and this and that and whatever. Like he has it all planned out and my whole life just shattered before my eyes. They gave me that DD-214 discharge paper. So I came home, the doctors in the army were like, oh yeah, you're getting surgery. Done deal. I had a spiral fracture L4, L5. Come home, doctors know, I think we can do some PT and get you rehabbed. And I did that for about a year and I was good to go. In that time, I was stupid, 18, 19 year old kid, got involved in a fight. So that ruined my chances with corrections. At the time I had tested for some places and they said, yeah, you gotta get that taken care of. So I just went to be a mechanic because I've always loved cars. But after that, I did dig it. So I went into EMS and just fell in my lap, actually. I was going to school and got my EMT basic. And then from there, wanted to, to get a job with the ambulance service that was here. And they weren't hiring at the time. There's a bunch of political nonsense going on. I got a job with the security company and they needed EMTs as well. And so I was working for Discovery Car Financial Services at the time. It was an interesting place to work as a security guard and an EMT to try to do that dual role because we had no medical control or anything. It was like, hey, you know, we know that you guys are EMTs and you guys can do things. So go ahead and do it. Ran into some situations where I felt like I needed that guidance or somebody to, to protect me. 
So I ended up quitting that job because I just felt vulnerable. And then I went on to EMT Intermediate, which no longer exists apparently, but it was good. I, I excelled it there and then got a job as a ski patroller and did that for five or six years. And then my wife and I felt like we needed a change. So we moved to Virginia and I got a job out in Richmond uh, with Richmond Amherst Authority. And I was like, I was in for a real rude awakening when I got there. I didn't realize how ugly the world was outside this little bubble that I was living in. I feel like Utah is, is fairly sheltered up until the last few years. Things have gone crazy now, but at the time I felt sheltered and I get there and they're talking about the statistics, about the, the, the crime rates and murder rates. And while well, I'm going through my preception and I, I stopped the instructor and said, hold on. I was like, I come from a place where we maybe have eight shootings a year. Most of those are from the cops, shoot the bad guys. And now you're talking, we're looking at well over a hundred a year. Like this is insane. And they all just chuckled, laughed. They cut me loose with my preceptor and she ended up becoming my partner. And, and we saw some crazy shit. And I still talk to her to this day. We've been friends since 2010, just working through our own garbage and stuff. But so yeah, I did that and then don't do business with family. So that's why I ended up moving back to Utah. And got a job back with the ski patrol. Boss called me up in the middle of all that family drama and said, Hey, man, I really want you to come back. I'll pay you more and make you a supervisor if you come back. And I was cool. I'll be there in two weeks. So I did that and then realized that that wasn't the route I wanted to go anymore. I wanted to, to continue with the end of the fire service and do more EMS. So I went to fire academy and got my degree. And I had to recertify and I was going to say intermediate, but they didn't do that anymore. They had just swapped over to the advanced. And a lot of things that I learned in Richmond, I've tried to, to, uh, to bring back here and was met with a lot of resistance. Didn't realize how behind we were at the time with our EMS compared to what I experienced out in, in Richmond. So I was, that was a lot of resistance, but. After everything was said and done, graduated college with my, my associate's degree, not that big of a deal. I've, I fought that tooth and nail because I didn't believe that I needed a piece of paper to, to say that I could do a job, but I landed the first place I applied for here. I got it. Um, and I've been with the department now for a little over nine years now, total. I have about little, about eight and a half years full time. And so here I am. <laughs> with all the things that I carry. <laughs> yeah. And you have that much time in and, and from a variety of places, you're going to carry quite a bit. Yeah. And we're going to get into some of that. Let's talk about Richmond some. I know I'm from just north of Richmond, so I'm, I'm aware of what the city is. I haven't run in Richmond, so I don't know the intricities of the city. So maybe describe some of that. What was the job like there? What was, uh, we'll start with what was the shift? What was, what, what, what so, was expected of you? Yeah, we had. A mandatory 16 hours of overtime was every, I can't remember if it was every week or every two weeks was a total of 16 hours. I, it's been a while since that, but I was working initially, I was working 12 in the afternoon to midnight and I actually really enjoyed that schedule because I was getting there at lunchtime, get some of that busy stuff that happens around lunch. And, and then when people are going home. And then a little bit of that nighttime stuff. Didn't realize like how little actually happens at night. I thought all the bad stuff happens at night, but actually it seems like it more happens during the day. So I did that shift while I was going through preception. They cut me loose with a, a paramedic who was wanting to be like a pediatric surgeon. And this guy was dialed. I, this guy was so smart and was just an incredible teacher. Continue to learn from him and tried to just be ready for every step. And then I only got to work with him for a short while before they decided to shake things up and say, Hey, we all, we're going to change the, the shifts up and stuff. And you can you know, bid the shifts and, and bid with a new partner. So I went, actually went back with my old preceptor and she was a fairly new medic. I think she was six months, seven months as a medic, but she was super smart too. Just incredible. Holly, I'll never, I'll, I'll, she's one of my good friends. And so we get working together and I wanted to keep doing that shift. And she's like, it just doesn't work good with my kids. And so her and I kind of didn't work together for a little bit. And so I ended up working 1800 to 06 for a handful of months. And I think that was really the eye-opening experience for me with all the, the brain damage sustained from this job happened. It was a race to beat the, the sun coming up, man, and get home before the sun got home, got up so I could finally, so I could sleep. 
Um, so when I did that, I would do four tens generally or four twelves and yeah, it was four twelves. So finally I get back with my preceptor and it was just a big city for me. Salt Lake city is, it's just small compared to what I had experienced. I grew up in Washington state in a little farm town that moved here. And I thought, oh man, Salt Lake city, that is, that is living it. And then I moved to there and there's a holy crap, it's even bigger. (laughs) (laughs) And there's such a a diverse uh, culture that I really hadn't. And when I lived in the farming community of Washington, I was a minority. We had a lot of migrant workers and then coming to Utah, we didn't really have a lot of minorities at all, little pockets of refugees and stuff like that. But it was, there really wasn't an exposure to that. And so moving to Richmond was really eye-opening to see these different cultures and, and just how people interact with each other differently. Utah is very, I, I, I want to say sheltered in a sense, just we live in this bubble and, and the predominant religion out here, it's, you know, not my cup of tea and, and moving out there was very different because you had the Southern Baptists and the born again Christians. And the occasional Mormon too, which was crazy. But yeah. So that was crazy. I mean, and then, and then projects, they exist. I didn't, I just thought that was made up, but they really exist. Yeah. They're definitely not made up. No. And that was, for me, that was so hard to wrap my mind around that people lived in, in these places. And I don't know. Some may have lived there by choice. Some, it was like, they, they had to live there. There was no other options for them. And it just. It was hard. And especially seeing like the kids, I was like, man, this is what you get. You get four walls that are made of cinder blocks. Like it is borderline on living in a prison in a sense. And so that was hard for me because sometimes I would lose my empathy and I just, I was like an asshole and, and just be like, you made that choice. And then there's other days where these people are doing the best they can. There's nothing they can't, this is what they're given right now. And, and they're, you can tell they're trying to get out of here, but sometimes they can't, you're stuck a vicious cycle, but yeah, that was hard for me. A lot of all the, the trauma, a lot of trauma, and then just really all the, just the call volume. It was intense compared to what I had experienced as a ski patroller. I was either handing out band-aids or putting people on backboards, but it was most of the trauma that I experienced as a ski patroller was like a broken arm or broken legs. It's not a big deal. So you mentioned, you slid the sentence in there when you started talking about Richmond that you think that was where the damage started? Yeah. So is there anything that jumps out at you? Is there, was there, was it specific or was it just general? Was it just the slow onslaught? I, I, it wasn't a slow onslaught. That's for sure. My, my second call ever, I was going through training with Richmond was we got dispatched for a fall. And that was it. We had no idea. We get there and it's in, it's in between like a garden apartment. And we get there and like, where, where's the call? Like who, who called 911? And people are just looking at us like, we don't know what you're talking. And somebody comes over and says, Hey, there's somebody laying on the ground over here. And it's this early twenties female that had fallen off of the, the, the balcony of her apartment, the second story balcony of her apartment where she was moving her furniture, she was moving in. And she, from what Pete bystander said, she lost her footing and she fell and that was huge for me because she was unconscious. She was posturing and in route to the hospital, my partner was telling me, I, I got to get an OPA and I got to get some airway stuff going on here. And while I'm trying to, she's so clenched and I'm watching her eyeball and it's just growing and growing. And I finally look up and I'm like, Hey, her eye is growing. And then all of a sudden it exploded in my lap. And I'm from that moment on, I mean, my partner looked up and he's oh, and part of my French, but he goes, fuck, that's gross. And I just was like, holy shit, what did I just get into? And so I just think, and it just continued traumas like that, full arrests where people coming out of the woodworker are in your business, um, just like critiquing you nonstop and you're trying to do your best and you're, you're following the algorithms and you're following protocols to a team. And these people don't know it, but they're, they're on you. Like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you going faster? And it's, man, there's just that continual beat down. So you mean um, you're talking supervisors are, are continually on the supervisors, but it was the public. Oh, okay. You know, okay. You show up for the calls and I was like, where did all these people come from? Sometimes there's 50 people showing up 
and they're all huddling around you, yelling at you. And they want you there, but they hate you at the same time. So you're supposed to be here because you're an ambulance driver is what you call them. So get them, but we hate you because you're not doing it. And we think your cops are associated with the cops. And this, this like this, I don't know, it was this weird hatred and it just never sat well with me. But I just, I remember everything coming to a head when I was working that, that 6 PM to 6 AM shift that just, I was taking a patient to a hospital and it was a, a, a rainy evening. And I just remember driving on this road to the hospital and looking over in the mud puddle and saw these two mallard ducks at Drake and a hen. And I was just like, cool. That's cool. Seeing them hanging out there right on, they're doing their thing. And then we were coming back to a new post and taking that same road, go by the puddle. And I see one of the ducks just splattered all over the asphalt and see the other one still over there in the puddle. And that just. I literally started crying. I like, I didn't even know why. Cause like I said, I hunt ducks. It just, it tore me up. I was like, that's not normal. Like, why is this upsetting me? Like I, I, and so then my sleep started getting super messed up. I was lucky to get three hours of sleep when I'd get home and I would, and then it got to a point too, where my wife would come in and say that she was leaving for work. And I don't remember any of this, but she told me a handful of times that she would come in and touch my shoulder and, and you lean in to give me a kiss and to say goodbye. And I just start swinging. And so I was like, man, I, I got to figure something out. So I went to my shift captain and talked to him. He was like, I think you need to go see the EAP. And I had no idea what that was. So I went and saw and go find out it's a counselor. And I was telling the guy what everything's happened in the last year and a half. And he just looks at me and says, you need sleep but I think you need to move back to Utah. And that kind of took me for a surprise because I was committed to being in Virginia and he's like, nah, you, I think you, you need to go back. So I ended up doing that. Um, a few months later, I ended up moving back to Utah, but all my sleep got better and the demons more or less disappeared once I was able to get some sleep and, and left that environment. Yeah. Sleep's a powerful medication. Put it that way. It's the one thing that we quite often lack in the fire service or, or EMS or in a hospital setting, to be honest with you. And it's one of the most important things we can have. And if we don't get the proper sleep, then it affects everything. It, it does everything. Yeah. So the demons came back at a weird time though. When I was, I went back to ski patrol, it was in the middle of the day. I just got done eating my lunch and I was taking just like a little quick power nap. And I just, there was a call that I had in Richmond that happened to be one of the, the, the girls that worked there. She was in like, she was like a logistics. She'd get our ambulances all ready to go, make sure that we were good to go. As soon as we showed up on shift, it was you hop in and go. And she had all that ready for me, but it was her grandma. We didn't know going there. And then. It was like just the worst situation ever. Like they just given us, us these new stretchers to try out these new electronic stretchers. I'd never seen one. It was like, here, go try it out and tell us what you think. And I'm trying to figure out what the buttons are and how this thing works. They're used to the old striker manual ones. And so we show up for this full arrest and a fire department shows up on it too. And we get in there and we're going to work, doing our thing. Like I, I place the King airway and I get her on the auto poles. My partner's getting the IV or the IO and get the meds on board and things are happening, right? This is going well, but she's got this pacemaker that's starting to throw us for a loop a little bit because we're seeing the, we're seeing the pacemaker working, but we're also looking at her rhythm and we're like, she's in corsage, like shit. So we had this hesitation and then my partner like, we got to shock her. So we shock her and I've never seen this happen before. But after we shocked her, her pacemaker just stopped working. I was like, shit, okay. And then she just went in asystole after that. And we were like, crap, we got to get going. And this is one of those calls where everybody in the world just shows up out of nowhere. And they're all yelling at us. We got family yelling at us. And I got on the radio and I was like, hey, we need, I got, usually our supervisor would show up on a full arrest to make sure that, as, just to ensure that everybody was doing what they needed to do it. And everything was going smooth. So I called for a supervisor and like, sorry, I'm not going to make it. You guys got to handle this by yourself. So I asked FD, he's like, Hey, do you guys mind trying to do some crowd control or, or can you get a hold of uh, PD and see if they'll show up in PD's nope, Sorry, we're busy. And so we're like, shit. All right. 
So as we're, we're walking out, I feel so bad. Like we tried everything we could to try to keep this uh, lady covered up the best we could while we're running out to the ambulance with her on the stretcher. The sheet blows off and she's got the autopulse going on. And if you've ever seen that, it's not a pretty sight, but it's a fairly violent thing. And literally I, as we're going out, I see that I look over and all these people are going, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh my, and just going crazy. And this lady passes out when she sees her and I'm like, motherfucker. And I can't get the stupid gurney to retract to get her into the ambulance and the fire department is trying to help me figure it out. And they're like, what the fuck is wrong with this thing? It was, it probably was only like 15 seconds, but it felt like 20 minutes trying to get her in. Finally get her in and we get to the hospital and we're met by this logistics girl. And after we dropped the patient off and the doctor confirmed that she was, she had died and we walk out and me and my partner were already a little disheveled and, and a little shooken from that. And then she comes up and she's, Hey, do y'all just take, uh, patient in for a full arrest? Like, yeah. When she's, is this her name? And I kind of, I was like, man, this is hip. I don't know if I should go into it. If it was her, this is my grandma. And I'm like, fuck. All right. My partner, she steps in and she's, yeah, we just took her in and she's, and she asked if she made it. My partner, uh, she she says, no, she, she didn't make it. We tried everything we could, but she didn't make it. And just seeing her expressions and just go from even like the slightest glimmer of hope that maybe we saved her grandma to just utter despair and to see her drop to the floor. It was almost too much for me to handle and, and I got mad at her. I didn't say anything to her, but I was mad. Like I didn't talk to her for a while because I was like, how dare you do that to us? I just, I, I, maybe she didn't know. I don't know, but I felt like she was putting us on the spot and it was almost like she was the, the feelings I got was that she was accusing us for her death. But so that, that lady <laughs> to this day, you know, she haunts me that her grandma, she haunts me. She comes back in my dreams and she's. She just, it's like, she starts out at a distance and I can see her and she's pissed and she's screaming at me and she gets closer and closer. And then all of a sudden she just rapidly just closes the gap to where she's at my face and she's just screaming at me. She just looks like the most scariest person and sounds like the most scariest person you've ever met or seen in your life. So that nightmare popped up in my head when I was at the ski patrol job. When I was trying to take that break and I just jumped out of my seat and I was in tears, sweating and just panicked. And I was like, holy shit, it's been like six months, seven months since I've done anything like this and had this experience. And it just happened in the middle of the day. Usually it's at night. I never had it happen in the middle of the day. And everybody, all my guys with me and stuff, they're all just looking at me like, what is wrong with you? They were all ski patrollers and they at this place and, you know, again, just broken arms and stuff. And none of them have ever really experienced anything like that. None of this. And they just looked at me like, dude, you are, you're messed up. And so it took me a minute to regroup. And, and then she just kept coming like, every night. She just, you know, she continued. And then I, I think I just got so overwhelmed with school and work that I don't know, maybe I was able to bottle all that stuff up and push it down way deep. Cause I didn't have those nightmares for two years as I was going through school, two and a half years. But then as soon as things calmed down, like my mind was able to start wandering again. She came up and then this old timer who, he was the nicest old man ever. And I just, I don't know why, because he was alive and kicking and doing well when we dropped him off. But I guess he coded like 10 minutes after we dropped him off of the hospital. I just always see his face and he always tells me, Chris, it's okay. But I always, it just makes me so sad because of just how positive that experience was with him. And he's like, always just told me Chris is okay. It's okay. And I just, it, it eat at me. So when you say when the ski patrol, what year was the, the return to the ski patrol again? Just for clarification. Like 2011. Okay. I'm there. Yeah. 2000. Yeah. It was about 2011 when I, when I went back. And <clears throat> this incident where it happened during the day there, wh what year was that? Man, it was probably late. Maybe 2010. It could have even been 2011, like summertime of 2000. Yeah. It was summertime of 2011. Okay. Like the end of summer. All right. Um, cause I came back in like June or July and I just remember, yeah, I, so it wasn't very long. It only been a few months that I came back and it just in the middle of nowhere hit me. And so did you, did you see therapist at that time? No, no, I didn't at all. I just, 
said, this is part of the job. I took that old mentality of that's, this is going to, this is what happens. Just deal with it. But I was in my late twenties at that time, um, slowly winding down from being that 20 year old, that party hard and drinking stuff. I got turned on to whiskey at that time. And so I started drinking a little more whiskey than I usually did. I was probably like three to four glasses a night and just, it felt normal to me though. Like that was just kind of like what we did. I was ski patrollers too. Like after our shift, we'd have a couple of beers or whatever, and just shoot the shit for a little bit and talk about the events of the day and what we got to do for the next day. And so it just was normalized. And then when I got the, the real kid, the fire job, my real job, realized that wasn't necessary. You know, I started talking to the guys and, and then I started to think about it. I was like, man, we're all alcoholics. Like at least half of us are because the other half are Mormon, but, uh, it's like, and I was like, this ain't right, but I still kept doing it, kept drinking, but I really tried to limit myself. And I found, uh, going to the gym and working out and that kind of took that, that drink away a little bit. Cause I was like, oh man, I feel like shit when I work out when after I drink. So I, I kind of stopped drinking a little bit, but then I got, it was, it was a really shitty first year there for me. I was, it was Christmas time. The first I had a plane, my very first fire was a helicopter crash into a building and, and killed two people. And it was just a total cluster because we uh, were so understaffed at the time. We were like two people on an engine and two people on, a, on an ambulance. And sometimes we were jump staffing from ambulance to the engine or the engine or vice versa. And like a captain and an engineer were jumping down, right? get on the, on the ambo to go run a call. And so we show up and I, I got these two guys that are just hanging in there and they're burning up. They're, they're, they're unconscious. One of them is clearly dead and another one I'm, I'm spraying the fire. Like I look at him, I'm looking at him and I'm like, dude, I think this guy's alive. And then he makes like this very purposeful movement with his arm. And I, I'm sure it was just nerves looking back at it now, but I'm like, shit. So I get on the radio and I'm the only one up there because my partner runs out of air within five minutes of the operation and they just leave me. And know what I know now, I was like, I should have left too, but I just stayed. And so they come running up and they cut him out of the seatbelt and he just drops to the floor and they start working him and they're like, no, he's passed. Like every bone in his body's broken and everything. So that doing the body recovery on that later for the ME for the second guy, that kind of was, it was not cool. But then the next shift, if anybody knows the hills along the Wasatch front here, now people take their, their UTVs and Jeeps and stuff, and they just cruise around all over and it was a snowy day and we get this call it was way out of my area, but everybody else happened to be on another call. And so I get this mess up to the side of this mountain where a Jeep is rolled over and I've got multiple echo patients and children ejected and I've got a battalion chief who's not quite sure what to think. I've got paramedics jumping on saying we need this and that and on the radio. And I'm just like, man, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like people, I'm like, I got people flagging me down to go up the trail a little bit. I got, you know, people yelling at me to stage in a parking lot. And I'm, so finally I just look at my partner. I was like, fuck it. We're going up there. So we motor up and we get there and there's just carnage. See this Jeep rolled onto its top, just mangled. I see people up on the side of a hill working a body that's pinned against a tree and I'm getting flagged to go help these kids. And as I'm walking to get the kids I walk past the dad and I just, I, my tunnel vision set in so bad because I'm glad I did because I just remember stepping over this, this river of blood coming out of the dad, my partner, I guess he didn't have the tunnel vision and he saw that the dad's head just was popped like a watermelon. Uh, duh. Just seeing all that blood, I was like, oh, God damn it. And I get to the kids and they're banged up pretty bad. They've got all their injuries, you know, broken pelvis and stuff like that. And we finally get them down to the mountain and the light, they just life flight them to the primary children's hospital. And the little boy, he's 10 years old. And he just keeps asking, where's my mom and dad? Where's my mom and dad? And I just, I felt like shit. Cause I, I didn't want to lie to the kid. Like I, 
but I also didn't want him to know that he just lost both of his parents just before Christmas. And I just, I, so I just told the little kid, I was like, man, I, I was like, I'm not sure we're, we're trying to get him up. We're trying to get him down here and get him down to the, in an ambulance too, buddy. Okay. And so his sister and him get life flyered in it and then they get the shitty news and I guess follow up. And I, I have decided at this point in my career, I don't ever want follow up again. I don't care when I drop a patient off. I don't want to know what happens anymore, but they ended up moving to Washington and living with some sort of relative or whatever, but. And then the next week I have a kid jump in front of a, a fucking train and battalion chief at the time didn't understand the value of not, obviously it's going to be an obvious fatal. There's no need to go in and, and, and check that shit out, but he made us go walk the tracks to confirm it. And there's just body parts everywhere. And that was a shitty three weeks and. Yeah, that's, that's not just, that's a very shitty three weeks. You could fill a, a career with just those three weeks. Yeah. And so, uh, short time after that, we do this shift bed. I get a new partner and a new captain. They settle a little bit. And I, kind of, I went through a lot of partners for the next year. I think I went through three partners. Well, one, two of them quit, went other places. One went to another shift, to another crew. Finally, uh, we do this, another shift, uh, bid and I, I get to work with this, this medic who I've gone through our little academy with, it was just, and I, him and I just instantly connected and, and then I get a new engineer and I still have my old captain and we just, everybody just meshed. It was awesome. But my new partner, he, him and I together were not a good combination as far as the calls that came our way. Like we worked well and, and we did a, a hell a bang up job, but man, we just turned into massive black clouds. Now, and the calls we've gone on together were to the point where he's left now. He could, it's too much. And, and sometimes I, I look at him and I tell him, I was like, man, I wish I could do what you did where you were able to just cut ties and say, I can't do it enough. And he's like, why can't you? I says, one, financially, I couldn't afford to do that. I was like, you set yourself up, right? Like you literally don't have any debt. Your house is paid off. You own every, everything that you own, have, you have, you own it. And I was like, I'm stuck. <laughs> and like, you don't have to be a firefighter anymore. And I was like, I do. I was like, it's in my blood. Dude. I was like, I gotta do this. Like that. I can't, I work too hard to get to where I'm at too. But yeah, I started seeing a therapist about three years ago, four years ago. This is somebody you knew before or were you introduced yeah. to them? I was introduced to them. And so like, if you want, I can get into like how that all happened. Because yeah. Okay. So got, went on a lot of, lot of bad traumas, a lot, you know, most of them was like, you were drunk, whatever, you wrecked your car, not a big deal, you know? But it was the kids, man. Those calls started to catch up to me and I started seeing more hangings. And I don't know, for me and a lot of the guys I work with, hangings are like the worst call to go on. Just, they just, they creep the shit out of me. And I don't know, like every time I go on a hanging, I just get sick to my stomach. I can't handle them. And I just started going up all of those for whatever reason. And they're all like my age or, or they're, or the kids or teenagers and stuff. And I see every hanging I've been to, I still see it. So I have to yeah. agree with you. If I never see another hanging in, in whatever's left of this career of mine, if I never see another hanging, it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm with you. And then just hearing the family's cries, like you, you're not going to get those sounds out of your head. You just can't. They hear a mother cry over her, her, her son or daughter killing themselves is so primal. It just, it's almost too much for you to handle while you're on the call. Like you have to do everything you can to block that shit out. So things started getting really dark in my mind. I, I'm not sleeping at all. Like I, I'm going days without sleep. And then I get to the point where my body is so exhausted that I just crash. But while, but even when that happens, I still have all these 
these dark images and these, these sounds running through my head while I'm sleeping. And so it's like, I'm not getting rested. I might sleep for 12 hours, but it's not a rested 12 hours. And so like, shit. All right. So we reach out to the EAP and I feel like I gave them PTSD just by telling them some of my stories. And I have one who says, I was like, I can't help you. And I was like, yeah, no shit. The um, EAP said that. Yeah. Okay. At home. And that's another theme that I can, of, of my own, I, I would, I feel like whoever we talk to, if they're not ready for it, I, I completely agree with you. It's almost if you give them PTSD from just relaying what you've been through. Yeah. So they tried to refer me to another person and this person was more or less just as qualified as they were not really qualified to handle first responders and military and hospital staff deal with. I, they more or less tried to get me out of ways on patting my back saying you did your job. I was like, yeah, no shit. I know I did my job. You just can't unsee what you, and you can't unhear what you heard. Like it's just, it's there. And they, my mind doesn't agree with those images. I'm sorry. So I just decided to find screw. I'm just gonna try to handle this on my own and started drinking heavy again. And it kind of, it scared me. So I stopped. I just, I don't know why, but I stopped. I just, I can't drink. I stopped, but it didn't make anything better. Everything still sucked. Still had the thoughts of just utter darkness in my, and, uh, and we had just started our own union here. We just started and joined the IAFF and you know, I'm, I'm to this point where I don't sleep. I'm just sitting on the floor, just scared to just fall asleep. And so I finally call the out of the center of excellence is late at night. And I'm just like, not I, like, I'm just grasping at straws at this point. And I call them and I'm like, and nobody answers. And I'm like, motherfucker, I thought they were supposed to be there 24 seven, but at the time, I, I think they were brand new, like just opening. So I don't know what was going on. So I left a message and I never heard back from anybody. I like, I was like, okay, so they'll call me in the morning. I can make it till morning. And I just kept telling myself, I just got to make it to the next day. Got to make it to the morning, make it till night or whatever. And nobody ever called. And so I reached out to her, our peer support after a while, it got they got to a point where I really hate saying this shit out loud. Yeah, it feels like such a coward for doing it. I just, I got to a point where I, at night I, I couldn't sleep. I, I couldn't handle it anymore than I, I, I just hold my gun and it's loaded. And I, but I couldn't ever pull the fucking trigger. I could I, I, I don't know why I couldn't do it. Yeah. I just can't, I, I either am too stubborn to do it or I'm too much of a coward, but I just, uh, so anyways, I mean, uh, I reached out to our peer support guy and I said, Hey man, things are dark right now and I need some help. And he kind of dug a little bit at what was going on. He's like, Hey, I'm not the one to, I'm not the one to help you, but I can get you in contact with somebody that can. And so I was like, cool. So I call this therapist and he's like, he's like I, I want to help you, but I can't get you in until three months from now. And that feeling was just so gut wrenching to be told that I, like, I'm ready to kill myself and I got to wait three more months. And it was the longest, hardest three months of my life. I feel like I'm surprised I'm married. I'm surprised that, well, my kid want them. he's only six, we're almost seven now. Like he wanted to have anything to do with me because I just turned into this shell of a human being. There was no soul. I was an asshole and just dark, just fucking dark, but I made it. I made it about three months. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. I mean. And that first session was so hard. Like it was literally like just opening every fucking wound and just letting you just bleed more and just exposing it. Like just left feeling so raw and so confused 
for three days. And I went back and I saw him six days after that. And as I was doing every about six or seven days, I'd go back to see him. I did that for a handful of months. And things started to feel better. I started getting better. But I remember early on in one of the sessions, he just said, I just want you to sit here for one minute and just listen. I don't want you to try to not think if you can, just, just empty your mind and just listen. Just close your eyes and just listen. I'm not going to talk. I just want you to listen. And I just... At first, like I could hear like his little sound machine that he had. And I picked up on that and I could pick up on this little water feature thing that was bubbling. I picked up on that and I was like, oh, those are great, whatever. And that was just this clock that just kept ticking. And it just kept ticking and kept ticking. I was getting so angry. Finally, after that minute, he's like, hey, open your eyes. He's like, and he goes, what's wrong? And I said, I'm going to break your fucking clock. And he looks at me and he's me and I says, I can't take that. I can't take that sound, that ticking. as like, it's too much for me. He's like, why is it too much for you? And I just sit there and sit there and I just start to real, and I'm, and I'm like, just start rambling because everything's time. Everything I do is timed. Life is timed. Every the minute you wake up, it's time. Your time to how long can you sleep? How much sleep can you get? Your time on a call, like you got to get out the door in X amount of time. You got to get to the call in X amount of time. You got to be on scene for X amount of time to the hospital X amount of time. I can't fucking take time. And I felt so good after that. I realized I was like, holy shit. I was like, it's time. And he's and he and he tells me, he's look. I don't give a shit about time. If I'm going to be late, I'm going to be fucking late. Whatever. They can go on without me and I don't care. And I was like, I can't be like that. And he's to a degree, you can. You don't, when you're off, don't set these time constraints for yourself. Don't just be off. And I was like, I can't. I was like, it's never how I've been. I've always been this way. But it was this realization that this hatred of time that I had, I, I like, it was able to trigger, to realize I what, one of my triggers anyways, I should say, I was like, okay, cool. Like I can handle this. And then we went out the, in this little courtyard area where I, I see the therapist, it's got this pond and a little Creek and waterfalls and it's got fish and ducks and all this shit. And he had me go out there after a session and we're just walking, just, just kind of just doing like a walk and talk therapy session. I thought it was weird at first, but it just brought me so much peace to be around that type of stuff. And I've always gone to the woods or gone out to the marsh or to the river, wherever into nature. And that's where I find my peace because I don't have any demands, no sounds other than just the natural sounds of the world, no cars, no people. And I can have these conversations and nobody's going to tell me that we're on the field this way. Nobody's going to tell me how I should feel or how I should have ran that call or anything. It's just me and the fucking squirrels or whatever out there. And so he picked up on this and he's, I think you need to spend more time fishing or whatever. Like you need to get out in nature more. He's like, I don't think a park is it. I was like, fuck no, I hate parks. Like, because there's people everywhere and I don't trust people. You know? I don't, and I can't just be me always on edge. I'm, I'm looking to see if somebody's going to do something or someone's going to get hurt or whatever. I, I couldn't let my job go. And so I started, I, I, I was like, man, this is crazy. And I tell my wife, I was like, it's super crazy, but no, my guy says I need to try to spend more time fishing. And she could chuckled. And she's like, I think he's right. And so we figured out a way to make it. So I could go fishing in the morning or I could go fishing in the afternoon while her and my son were in school and work and stuff like that. And at first it was like, for me, I was like, I got to go catch a fish. You know, like, I got to do this. I'm trying to like this job, this objective I had to do. And a couple of times after it just became like so therapeutic, I didn't give a shit if I caught a fish. I I just anchored my boat back in a cove or something like that. Just hang out, just listen to the water, bounce against my boat, splash against the, the banks or whatever, watch the birds. And now if I go out, it's just, if I catch a fish, that's just the icing on the cake. It's just, it's peace for me. 
but all this stuff was good and it was going great. I really got a hold of my demons. Everything was good. And then I go to a, a refinery school in Louisiana and me and one of the guys I work with and we're out with a couple of the refinery guys and we're going to this bar and the waitress asked like what we do and we're all like, we're firefighters. And she goes, oh, y'all see some shit, don't you? And that just, that was a trigger for me. That sent me into a tailspin. It was almost like I was going back to before I met my therapist, before I called the, the center of excellence. And uh, so I go to the bathroom and I'm just trying to regroup and I'm just in there just talking. I just keep saying that over and over again. I'd never been to a bar where there was a dude that sits in the restroom and like hands you a paper towel and, and shit. So I'm just sitting there. I was like, why, why is this guy in here? So I finally was like, look, dude. Nothing against you, but you can't be in here right now. And he's like, sorry, it's my job. And I said, I can't have you in here right now. And he said, sir, it's my job. You got to deal with what you got to deal with in here. And I'm like, motherfucker. So I'm just trying to take these deep breaths, trying to be like, okay. Cause when she said that, all I could see was every fucking dead kid I'd ever been on. Every kid just fucking every kid. And, and one mom, her screams, I'll never forget, I'll never forget. It, her, her screams are, are literally what horror movies are. No, I'm sorry. No need to apologize. I'm just giving you some space there, man. It's really hard, man. It's... <laughs> no, it's, it's, yeah, it has to be hard. It's impactful stuff, man. Impactful stuff. Well, I, I finally feel like I get my shit together. At least enough so I can go back out and look the guys. And started just pounding beers and, and shots, just like I am. And my, my buddy that I went with, he's been, you okay? And I just looked at him and I says, nope, give me another one. And he's like, you sure it's a good idea? And I said, shut the fuck up and give me another one. And so I just buying a round of shots for everybody to try to, to change the subject. And I just kept just fucking drink like a fish. I hadn't drank that hard in a long time. And that was when I really realized like how bad, like drinking for me and dealing with these mental health issues that I got going on, they don't mix. And I just, it was, it brought everything back to the surface and it just, it was ugly. That night was so, so ugly. And I, I didn't sleep at all. I, I thought for sure I'd at least pass out from how much alcohol I drank. And I, I, but the, the shit in my head wouldn't let me. And so I, I sent a message to my therapist at four o'clock in the morning and said, Hey, I'm in Louisiana. This is what happened. When I get home, can I see you? He's, he shoots me a text back at eight o'clock that morning. Yep. I can see you when you get back, but be careful with the booze. And I kind of, I took that little nugget that he gave me with the alcohol. And I was like, I was like, I, I'm going to lend myself to two drinks a night for the rest of the week. And I was there for four more days and I did good. I, I stuck to my word. I don't know just why I did it, but I did it for myself and to get back and talk to him, we told him everything was going on and stuff. And I was like, why would that be a trigger for me? Why would someone ask that? Was, because they want to hear your stories. And I was like, but I don't want to give them my stories. No, nobody needs to know this shit. And he's like, they're using you to get, to work through whatever shit they're dealing with. Like you're their therapist. Like they've probably seen something that wasn't, was unsettling and they want to hear something more unsettling to make themselves feel better. And I was like, I don't know. He's, I know, maybe just grasping the straws too, but he's like, that's genuinely what happens. And I was like, well, why the fuck do people want to know that shit? 
And hey, the others, we're, we are a weird species where we want to know and see the ugly and then realize after we've done it, that that was a mistake. Hell, but he's a plus people want to view you as a hero. And I was like, well, I'm far from a fucking hero. In their eyes, you are, and they want to know what you do to make sure that you are a hero in their eyes. And I was like, well, that is a really fucked up thinking. Because, look, I'm no, no better than anybody else. The only thing that's different is that I might just be crazy enough or dumb enough to do what I do. We all, every job that everybody has is, is no different. And it's, it's all important. And he's like, he's, I think your trigger was alcohol. And so I've listened to that and I think he's spot on. Whenever I, I start to get a little crazy with alcohol, things get ugly. So I, I realized that was a trigger for me. So I, I've pretty much just stopped drinking. I might have a drink a month with that, you know, I'm in a system, like a social gathering. It's never by myself or anything like that. Or after work, it's just like hanging out with my family and we're just, just doing our thing. And I might have a beer. Like I, I, I pretty much cut off all whiskey, all hard liquors. So that was, things were going great. And then I start seeing some really, some more fucked up calls. Like everybody does. And then they go on this, this fucking kid who's 11 years old and, uh, he, he hangs himself with his shirt from his fucking bunk bed. And we get there and I, I, as I go look up into the doorway to enter the home, there's little brother. You just see this look on his face of this absolute like shock and terror. And you just hear him and he's just, he's walking in circles in the living room of this town home, just go, no. And I'm like, Hey buddy, what's going on? And he, and he just points and he goes, he's down there. He's down there. I did everything I could. And he just keeps saying, I don't know. And I'm just looking at this kid eat me up. I'm gonna go downstairs. And his little brother had cut his brother down with a, a knife, kitchen knife, or yeah, kitchen knife. And, uh, we get the, the shirt off of his brother's neck and we stick and we're going to work. And my partner, we're, him and I were working and you know, the medic units show up and we're all doing our thing and it's crowded and cramped and we, uh, we finally, we get pulses back and we're like, okay, all right, it's cool. So we're, we're boogieing to the hospital and the little, I'm on the truck at the time, so I don't have to go to the hospital and, and ride in the back of that ambulance. So I'm just cleaning things up after they all left and I just, that kid is just distraught and I, I don't know why the mom shows up and she was like, she didn't know what happened or maybe she's just that much in shock that she has no expressions. I don't know. And the, his little brother just finally just breaks down and lets it all out. His little brother has, he is so fucking tough. He got all of his brothers and sisters and he had a grundle. I don't know how many there were. But he got them all upstairs in his parents' bedroom to stay away from all that. So they didn't have to see any of that, but he dealt with it. He was a man. Like he grew up in that instant in, in seconds. And he just finally, just, he finally was allowed to be a kid again. When he saw his mom and he just. Yeah, that for a child to, to protect siblings like that and then to take that burden on for themselves. I don't know if it's growing up, but it, it's it's definitely something that, akin to growing up. Yeah, he's so he's so brave. He's so courageous to be able to, to, to do that. I don't know of many 8 to 10-year-olds that have that 
much gumption to be able to do anything like that. And to finally get to see his innocence come back. It was so hard to see that. No, I just, I get in the back of the truck. I'm like, my captain has this uncanny ability to, to block all this shit. I don't know how he does it. He's been in the fire service now for 32 years, 33 years. And we could talk calls with him. He said, I don't remember that. And I'm like, how do you not remember that? But he's like, all right. Well, he starts talking and I just, I and just, he was like nothing. And I just, I said, Cap, I can't go back to the station right now. We need to go for our evening drive. Like some, sometimes we would, we'd get in the truck and we'd just go for a drive and uh, do a little area familiarization stuff and just drive around, checking out shit. And, and my engineers, yeah, I got you. And so we just go for a little drive for 15, 20 minutes. And man, and the captain, he just gets on a call. He's like, you, you go, we go back now. And I'm like, yeah, we can go back. But I just, we all get back and we all just kind of, like my captain, he, he, like I said, he, I don't know how he does it. He, he grabs his, his cold Pepsi and sits on his chair, on a chair that sits out on the apron and enjoys the rest of the evening. And I'm sure he, maybe he's working through his own shit. I don't know, but he never let on to any of us that he had anything done like that. My, my engineer and I, we just kind of go on the kitchen table and sit there quiet. And I, I just get up and I was like, that was fucked up. And then I just go to my room. And so. This is the call that told me that I never want to, I never want to follow up again from, cause all I knew as a kid was he had pulses. Did I figure he was going to pass away? Probably if he didn't, he was going to be a vegetable for the rest of his life. But so I'm going up to my mom's and I get there and this is the same week It's my kid's birthday and I'm getting text messages on my phone while I'm driving. I'm like, motherfucker, this is boring. And my wife checks it. She's hey, he's texting you. I'm like, yeah, okay. We get up to my mom's and I start reading the texts. And uh, I stop reading them. I go inside and try to be with family. So I'm like, I know this is going. I don't want to be doing this anymore. I want to just move my family. I'm, just, I'm already a mess. And finally, I'm just like, okay. Is getting the best of me. So I go back outside and I read the rest of the text messages. And, and oh, the guy's work was like, yeah, he didn't make it. They pulled the plug today. And I just start crying. Just fucking balling. And my, my stepdad comes out. You're good. And I was like, not right now. Just get away. I don't want to be by anybody right now. And so... He wasn't sure what to do with that. So he, he, he was nice enough to give me that space. He left, but then my wife came out. My mom came out first. And then I'm like, you gotta go away. I can't do this right now. And my mom does not like bad things. Like she'll do anything and everything to just push that stuff away. Like, even if it's happening, she's like, it's everything's okay. And I'm like the fuck it is. <laughs> so, well, finally, she leaves me alone. And my wife comes up later. Let's go for a walk. So we're going, just walking, and I can't even make it to the end of the driveway. And I just start bawling again, just fucking, just like this, like a little baby, just bawling. And she just holds me. And that's all I really wanted because after that, like it made me feel like it, it still sucks and all that shit's still there. But I was able to finally get my shit together after my wife just gave me this big hug and just, she didn't say a fucking word. And I think that's what I needed, at least for that. I just needed somebody to just give me a fucking hug and just listen. I didn't want anybody to say anything because you're not, nobody's going to understand what you're going through. You no, know, the guys that work there, like you can shoot the shit with them and you can tell them what's going on, but Anybody outside of this world, they don't fucking get it. And it's not fair to expect them to get it. What are you doing today to maintain your, your mental health? Like, um, are you still seeing the same therapist? I don't see him 
regularly. I did have to go back and see him again a few months ago. The, the great thing is now that I'm like in the system with him, I can call him up and he can schedule me in within, usually within 48 hours. And so I can go in and just kind of just dump on him for an hour or so. And, but I had to go see him for a couple of weeks, uh, maybe even more on that. Cause uh, we did this passive shakeup and I had a brilliant idea of shaking everybody up and, and just and splitting up all the crews. And that just set me, I guess that was another one of my triggers. Like it just, it destroyed me. Like I had these, this group of guys that were my brothers that we'd all experience all this stuff together with when, when they moved me to a super slow station and with guys that I've never worked with really or, or what it was just, it's, it was hard. So I went, saw him and I'm feeling good now. And finally back into the gym again for the last month or two now. And that's my outlet was working out with the panel lifting because I can use that darkness to to lift weights and stuff when it got heavy for me. And so it, it helped push me. It took a break partly because I had just got done with a meet back in December and I was done for a while. Like I'm so spent, but then just I allowed, allowed life to just get in the way and those dark demons got in the way and to a point where I was, I just got, I left it, but now I'm back. And so I've been doing the gym feels better. And then just really trying to be open with, with my wife and, and I use my old engineer a lot too. I call him and text him a lot too, and we just talk a lot. And that's been really helpful for me to have that as a resource. And then my, my wife has just been super supportive. Like she's an incredible woman and it's been, it's awesome. Like I know she deals with her own shit and she's got helping raise two hooligans and working too, but. She's still strong enough to help me take care of me. You know, so what I've been doing, it's, and it feels good now, it's, you know, feeling like I'm on the up and up again. And that's obviously the good news. That's, yeah. that's a good, that's a good end right there. Yeah. That feels good. Yeah. That's the good shit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yeah. We'll take a breath there and, and we'll get onto these last couple of questions I have for you. If you're ready for them. Yeah. And obviously the name of the show is the things we all carry. We, we all carry shit out of this job. We can't help it. Some of us process it well. Some of us don't process it at all, but we also carry stuff into the job or we carry stuff every day. And so I always like to ask the guests, what's your everyday carry? What's something you have to have on you either at work or not. It doesn't have to be at work, but it, what's something you, you find yourself every day with oh i don't know why but i have to carry my pocket knife with me it's with me all the time the only time i don't have it is when i'm sleeping if i don't have it i feel vulnerable i feel naked almost it's i don't know it's nothing fancy it's just a, a knife that i've had for a really a long time. I don't know. I don't know why, but that's what I, I have to have it with me. It, it's like a comfort thing. Now. Perfect. That's, and there's no right or wrong answer. So it's just curious <laughs> what people carry. Yeah. We, we all carry our tools. We all carry our, our memories and our, our traumas. And sometimes we just talk about something that that's useful for us. Yeah. And finally, normally ask for a, a book suggestion, um, something you've read, something you'd like other people to read. And I realized not everybody's into reading and not everybody has the time to sit down and read or the attention span. Cause I know my ADHD takes over and I don't have, <laughs> I don't have the attention span to read and I love reading. So I don't, let's go with a book, a movie, maybe just a person you want people to be aware of. Man, probably there's two books Okay, for me that I, they always kind of, I always think about and think. The stories and stuff. One of them is Walden from Thoreau. Yes. That's a hard book to read. <laughs> it really was, but just that connection with nature for me was huge. And then the other one is the jungle by Upton Sinclair. Upton Sinclair. Yes. Yes. I always got that free bot when the, the industrial age was underway and stuff. Yes. That story resonated with me 
It's just about how, how life just beat this guy up. He lost his wife and kids. He lost everything. And at the end of it, he said enough's enough basically. And he took control of his life and he didn't let other people dictate his life anymore. And so that was probably one of my favorite books. I, I think both of those are great choices and I appreciate it. Hopefully, uh, some listeners can reach out, take a look at them and get something from both of them. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Of course. Hey, Chris, this has been one hell of a conversation. I tell you, thank you for being so open. Thank you for being vulnerable. And yeah, just thank you. That was, that was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for letting me, let me share some of my stories. As the year draws to an end, I wanted to take time to thank each of you for listening and supporting this endeavor. A simple idea born of a local tragedy has created a community that now reaches internationally. Someone I never had the chance to meet made an impact on my life when he decided to end his. At that moment, I knew someone had to create a platform to expose the traumas, the emotions, and the stories of first responders. I also realized we all needed to hear the stories of triumph and recovery. This show has provided just that, a platform for survivors to tell their stories. It's not...